Good morning. There it is. Uh, our text today is from Nehemiah 7, 1 through 6. Please follow along with me. When the wall had been rebuilt and I had positioned the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed. I then put in charge over Jerusalem my brother Hananiah and Hananiah, the chief of the citadel, for he was a faithful man and feared God more than many do. I said to them, the gates of Jerusalem must not be open in the early morning until those who are standing guard close, uh, close the doors and lock them. Position residents of Jerusalem as guards, some at their guard stations and some near their homes. Now the city was spread out and large, and there were not a lot of people in it. At that time, houses had not been rebuilt. My God placed it on my heart to gather the leaders, the officials, and the ordinary people so they could be enrolled on the basis of genealogy. I found the ge genealogical records of those who had formerly returned. Here's what I found written in that record. These are the people of the province who returned from the captivity of the exiles, whom King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had forced into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and to Judah, each to his own city. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jeff. Notice I didn't have him read on in the text. <laughs> we'll get to chapter 7, all of it this morning, and there's a long list of names. So if you've not turned, turn to Nehemiah 7. If this is your first Sunday with us, we have journeying through this glorious book nestled in the Old Testament. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to worship together in your house. What a oasis in the midst of this world in which we live and a hectic week. Thank you for ministries such as Public Servants Prayer on which Pam is serving uh, so faithfully and how you're using. Lord, we, we thank you for uh, your word and we ask now that you would kind of clear uh, the concerns of the, of the week, the thoughts of the grilling this weekend and allow us to focus on what you would have for us this morning in Jesus name. Amen. Well, if you look at Nehemiah 7 after verse 6 and you go on, you see this laundry list and I was thinking about this. I, I, I loved hearing stories of, of relatives and there are times in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s. My great uncle would share how he flew over Paris when uh, France was liberated by the Nazi, from the Nazis and, and how that was and the medals he would bring out and show and so grateful for that. You know, and same could be said of the church. I love talking to the more mature saints and the congregation who have faithfully served, perhaps been involved in establishing a church or overseen the, the birth of a parachurch ministry or have pioneered overseas missions. So grateful. And Nehemiah 7, if you start making a list, you're going to come up with over 120 names. <laughs> a list that would make any genealogist socks roll up and down. There's no doubt, right? I mean, I had to say that. Several of the names most of us know, such as Solomon, Asaph, and Zerubbabel. But if you look through the names, there's some such as Zatu, Bibai, and Spaghetti. Uh, no, that's not right. Uh, that are listed there and you're going, wow, I don't know a lot of these people. But this is a generation, this list that's given in chapter 7 of Nehemiah 
These are individuals who left the comforts of Babylon. Remember, they're second generation, third generation. They're, they're not the ones who were taken into exile. They've grown comfortable living in Babylon in many, many ways. And they didn't come to Judah and were met with some woman with a torch with the inscription, give me your tired, your poor, and, you know, and your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. No, rather making that 850-mile trek, they were met with hostility. There were those who want to kill them, local yokels. There were those who weren't really excited that they were taking up parcels of land. And they certainly were met with a city that was laid in destruction. If the average period for the generation is considered 30 years, we are talking three generations from the time they were taken into ex, uh, to deported to the time they returned. Three generations. It's a fourth generation by the time we get to Nehemiah and the rebuilding of the wall. In fact, just let me show you a couple of photos here just to remind us. We're, we're leaving Susa, capital of the Persian Empire, Babylonian era uh, period as well, and going to Judah. And then the time frame, just to remind us as well, we're talking uh, 516 BC is when Israel returns to build the temple. And as you can see, we're looking at the 400s when Nehemiah rebuilds the wall. And again, you're talking approximately 120 years, four generations. And, and Nehemiah is saying, it's time to step back and to review who we're dealing with. What do we have here? And as you see in the text, as we've been looking, it took nearly two months to build the walls, which is an amazing feat. We've discussed that. But Nehemiah is not done. Just because the walls are complete and the gates are hung, there's still work to be done. And Nehemiah, good, doing, being a good leader, is going to see fit that that's happened. So let's look at chapter 7, verse 1. It says, When the wall had been rebuilt and I had positioned the doors. Remember, in chapter 2, uh, all of the walls were down. Chapter 4, we, we had segments of the wall, but hostility was met. Even the last chapter, chapter 6, look at 6-1. Remember the text? It says, When the enemies came, it said, I had not positioned doors in the gates. So now we're at a, a place where it's all done. The gates are hung. The doors are, are swinging. They even can get locked, as we're going to see here in a minute. And Nehemiah states here in the text that he places gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites. Now, I don't know about you, but as I look at the text, I go, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, gatekeepers, they were the policemen of the day. You, you need them to, to, to guard these walls. But singers and Levites, <laughs> what do they have to do with the walls, right? You're kind of, mm, I, I don't see the connection here. Why would you mention this, Nehemiah? Well, this is significant. And if you're taking notes, you've got the handout there, or if you're online and you're watching, you've got the outline. All Israelites were needed for this construction. We saw that early on when we looked through the list of people and who was involved. But that has to continue for, in order for the, the walls to be secure. Remember the Jebusites when David went to attack uh, Jerusalem years before this in 2 Samuel? That was their fault, their Achilles heel. They didn't have the people involved with the security of the walls and here, all Israelites need to be involved. Secondly, the singers and Levites, are, 
they're important to worship, and that's vital to the walls. We've seen this time and time again in our study. Why is Nehemiah burdened about walls of a city? It's for God's reputation. The two worship, the, 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 the defense of this city are tied together. I'll show you another photo. I love archaeology. This stone, is, it's about this big. It was found in 1968. It comes not from Nehemiah's walls. It comes from Herod the Great during the time of Jesus. Scholars believe that it was part of the, the structure, the wall around the temple complex. And it states, this is the place of the trumpeter. Herod the Great took great lengths to ensure that musicians... Don't you love this? Where's my worship team? You should be cheering, saying amen. That, the, that the, the musicians were part of the construction, were part of the wall. Herod the Great had a lot of faults, but one thing he knew was he had to win over the Jewish population. And that's one of the reasons he built the temple. And, 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 and he trained the priests to be the carpenters because he, wanted, he knew that all of this is tied together. The identity of the Jewish people, worship of Yahweh, Jerusalem, it all ties. Nehemiah knew this as well. Uh, there's Isaiah 62 states, I post watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. Listen to the text. They should keep praying all day and all night. Wow. You who pray to the Lord, don't be silent. Don't allow him to rest until he reestablishes Jerusalem, until he makes Jerusalem the pride of the earth. That's Isaiah 62. The two go hand in hand. And Nehemiah knew that the fortification of the city was directly linked with the temple. And so what does he have? He's got the musicians there, the singers. Later on, there's going to be a huge celebration. And we're going to watch one part of the choir goes one way on the wall. And the other goes on the other side. Uh, it's glorious. We'll get to that. It's pre-Bach, but it works. All right? and, and so we'll see this. But the musicians and then the Levites. Remember, this is the tribe where the priests uh, originate. So he's talking about the priestly line there that are involved and notice what we see in verse 2. After he's appointed these individuals, he's not done. He says, And then I put in charge over Jerusalem my brother, Hanani, and Hananiah, the chief of the citadel. So we have these two men. Hanani is Nehemiah's brother. He's mentioned earlier in chapter 1. He's the one who brought the news to Nehemiah that there's a problem in the city. Hananiah, we're told, I mean, this guy is a man's man. He's a military uh, guru, he, he guards the citadel, which guards the temple complex and the north side of the city, which is really the most vulnerable. Well, lest you think that Nehemiah is guilty of nepotism <laughs> or that he has selected two men because they've given the most to the capital campaign project of the wall or that he just loves la or first names that start with H-A-N-A-N-I. No, that is not the case. The text tells us why he selected them. Don't miss this. Look what it says. For he or they, the Hebrew here is a little unclear. I think it's a reference to both uh, honeys, okay? <laughs> it says they are faithful men and they feared God more than many who do. There's the key. Why did Nehemiah select these two men? Because of their character. Because of their faithfulness to the Lord. 
Fearing God, we've already seen, is vital to this book. We saw it in chapter 5 when Nehemiah says, you, you, you nobles, you governors, you've not feared God. He says, I'm trying to fear God. As one commentator writes, the characteristics Nehemiah deems significant and others reflect credibility on his own scale of values. A church, a ministry, a country can take on its shape of its leader really fast. <laughs> and Nehemiah was a man of character. He was a man who feared God, and that is what he looked for. Remember, we, we discussed last week, what does fearing God mean? It's not cowering in a corner, afraid God's going to strike you with lightning if you don't cross every theological T. No, no, it, it's one of awe. It's one of reverence that then spills over into obedience. And that's what these Hanis were known for, right? Loving God, fearing God, serving him. You know, it's interesting. He's looking for faithful and those who fear God. It's the same qualifications that Moses in chapter, back in Exodus, remember his father-in-law said, Moses, you can't handle this. You need help. <laughs> you, you can't oversee all of this yourself. And it says in Exodus 18, you should also look for able men. Now, this is Jethro's advice to Moses. Among all the people, men who fear God and are trustworthy, who hate dishonest gain, set such men over them as officers over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Later in Hosea, God issues judgment on the leaders of Israel Listen to what the judgment states. Hear the word of the Lord, O people of Israel. For the Lord has an indictment against the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or fear of God in the land. Wow. Nehemiah knows this wall is meaningless if we don't have men who can oversee it, who are faithful and fear God. That's true of a church. It's true of a parachurch ministry, the need for faithful men and women. 1 Samuel 12, only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things he has done for you. A side note, again, this is free this morning as well. If you want to be used by the Lord, then you need to be found faithful in serving him. Can you imagine a kid on a basketball team? He never goes to the practices. He disrespects the coach, and then the last game he punched a ref. Well, you would that kid would be benched, right? Couldn't kick him off. He'd tick off mommy and daddy. But you know, bench him, right? It's not gonna work. This this kid is not gonna be one that's gonna be used. That's what the Lord's looking for: men and women who are faithful, who trust. And the reason Nehemiah and these two men are used greatly by God is that they feared him and they were found faithful. Well, Nehemiah is not done. He has appointed the singers. They're breaking out in song. He's got the Levites. He's got the two Hannies. Then he says in verse 3, And I said to them, The gates of Jerusalem must not be opened in the early morning until those who are standing guard close the doors and look after them. This text, again, is, is difficult in the Hebrew. Uh, scholars debate, there's a lot of ink that's been spilled as to what exactly is Nehemiah saying. Some would argue that what he's stating is that the doors are not to be opened during the heat of the day. 
In the middle of the day, they're to be closed. Why? Because this is siesta time. Genesis 18, the Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Memre as he sat at the entrance of the tent in the heat of the day, the text tells us. We know that Rome in AD 410 was destroyed by the Goths and they entered the city in midday when everyone was asleep. In fact, one ancient historian says the gates were rushed at midday while the men were off their guard. And that's precisely what Nehemiah is concerned about is this interpretation. Another is, no, no, no. What Nehemiah is saying is that you open late the gates and you close them early. This interpretation argues that the gates were only opened when individuals were awake and active. And I think this is the preferred reading. Either way, what we see is Nehemiah is concerned. And I don't know about you, I read this text and I think, well, duh. I mean, we need to shut the gates. We need to lock them. I mean, yes, Nehemiah, we, we kind of got that. But put yourself in Nehemiah's shoes. You've gone to great lengths to ensure the security of this city, the walls that are being built, the gates that are hung. He's not going to leave any stone unturned. And don't forget, Nehemiah clearly knows his enemy. <laughs> we already saw that last week, right? With this band of brothers outside the city that are far from righteous, that would love to see the demise and the destruction. And remember as well, when he heard the news about Jerusalem in chapter 1, what did it say? And the gates were burned. It's the most vulnerable spot. So if you're going to guard a city, you better watch the gates. You better make sure that we have those doors closed when we need to do them. And so he is going to solicit the help of the locals and, and take charge. Well, the gates are taken care of, but notice it says guards at stations and some near their homes. But verse 4 we got a problem. This wall is 1.7 miles long. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> 52 days, 1.7 miles long. It, it, it has 10 gates, approximately 8 towers. Debated who you talk to. It's enormous. And so you, you have this huge structure. And the problem is the city has very few residents. Notice what the text says in verse 4. It says, now the city was spread out and large, and there was not a lot of people in it. This is a problem. Normally, when the walls were built, ancient walls, they had homes built right up to the wall. They were built simultaneously. Why? Because if there was an invasion, you took the houses and you filled them full of rocks, making a very thick wall, very uh, impregnable, uh, which was great. Clearly, they didn't have time to do that here. Uh, one, we don't have the residents to sustain it. And, and so Nehemiah recognizes we got a problem because it's, it, it's going to be taxing on the very few people that live within the city to maintain the walls, the gates, etc. And so now he needs to figure out which people you want in the city and which people you don't. And you say, well, why is that a big to-do? Because later we're going to find there isn't just opposition on the outside there's little louses within the camp <laughs> and he's got to be very careful you don't want someone uh, like Tobias uh, influence taking over a section of the wall they're not to be trusted and so he's got a way through this and and he is going to give land as we're going to see it reminds me of the homestead act under president lincoln in 1862 
You realize that each citizen of the, U the U.S. at that time was given 160 acres? Whew, that's crazy. But that's in 1862. So let's go back to the text, right? Nehemiah is giving them prime real estate. And how is he going to assess who gets what? And that's what we're going to see here. And I love verse 5. My God placed it on my heart together the nobles, the officials, and the people so they could be enrolled on the basis of genealogy. Now stop at the very beginning. Notice what the text says. My God has placed it on my heart. A man, woman who fears God, the Lord is going to lead. And that's what you see with Nehemiah. God goes before him. And don't you just marvel at that? The God who placed the stars and the, the expanse in Genesis 1 is the same God who placed his hand upon Nehemiah. And, is, and by the way, that's what he's done for those of us who know Jesus as our Savior. We have something unique that Nehemiah didn't have, and that's a permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery, leaning again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Jerry Bridges writes, grace expresses two complementary thoughts, God's unmerited favor to us through Christ and God's divine assistance to us through the Holy Spirit. Think about this for a minute unlike Nehemiah, who, who didn't have the permanent dwelling of the Spirit, he certainly had God's guidance. We have a permanent dwelling of God in our midst, who leads and guides. I was thinking through this, the Spirit's presence provides us guidance and direction, not just in how best to serve the Lord in a particular ministry, but in our decision-making, and our relationships, during times of great difficulty and pain, and times when it's a life of ease. The Spirit is there leading the one who is faithfully serving. That's comfort. No wonder he's called the great comforter. We're not left on our own. Even when we do not know how to pray, Romans 8, 26 tells us the Spirit will take over and intercede. <laughs> That's awesome. I mean, that, that should make your socks roll up and down like the genealogist. But there is a caution in this, isn't there? Prayer for the Spirit's leading is not so that we can live happy lives free of pain and suffering. And Nehemiah is doing the work of the Lord, but I'll tell you, it's not been rosy. We've already seen that, and he's not done. Wait till we get to the next few chapters. The next section is glorious. It's about them reading scripture, but then he's got some reform to do. And so the caution is praying for the Spirit's leading is why? So that God could be glorified. It's from fear of him, awe of him, that we seek that he might be praised. And this is why scripture states we are not to quench the spirit. Those of you who know Jesus Christ as your savior, the indwelling of the spirit, cost careful, living in sin or entertaining the things of this world will muffle the spirit's leading. There's no doubt. It reminds me of the, the teenager whose mom's yelling from downstairs, clean your room, and what does the teenager do? Turns up the music. <laughs> you, you muffle it. That's what sin does to the Holy Spirit. 
Being a Christian for a long time does not guarantee spirituality since the person may not have allowed the spirit control of his or her life during some of those years. And so we need to be in tune to the Lord's leading. Nehemiah is doing that. Look at that. My God has placed them. This wasn't Nehemiah's idea. He's looking to the Lord for leading as, you know, he's herding cats here. This is not an easy endeavor. And the Lord guides and so we're told in verse 6 that he, he pulls out a genealogy list. Now notice it's not just any genealogy list because verse 6 tells us these are the names of those who returned from the exile. They're the ones who came and rebuilt the temple earlier, a generation before. This laundry list of names is identical to that which is found in Ezra 2. I know what you're thinking. Oh, wouldn't one be sufficient? <laughs> it's a long list. But the reason for the repetition of the material is for the importance of stressing that the community that appeared towards the end of the reconstruction and purification is the same community that undertook the rebuilding of the temple. There are some underlying theological truths as well. It's easy when we get to these genealogy lists or the laundry list of names Yes, we know every word of Scripture is inspired, but we kind of put it on cruise control and go 180 miles per hour till we get to the next juicy part, so we think of the text. But don't miss this. There's several important things here. One, if we, in, in looking at this, it reminds us that the Lord keeps his promises. The reputation of the Jewish archives serves to remind the people of their inheritance and their calling. I mean, this is why it's so meticulous. I mean, look at, look at verses 15, 16, and 17. You have 648, 628 descendants, 2,322. This sucker is precise. We're not even rounding up. Well, it's approximately 200. No. It's, it's precise. It's profound. Why? Jeremiah 29 states, the Lord tells the people, listen to this, to make themselves at home in Babylon. He says, bummer, but you're being judged, so just make yourself at home in Babylon because you're going to be there for a while. It's time you learn some lessons. But then the Lord says in verse 10, don't miss this. He says, for the Lord says, only when the 70 years of Babylon rule are over will I again take up consideration for you. Then I will fulfill my gracious promise to you and restore you to your homeland. This is it. This is Nehemiah. It's Ezra. It's Zerubbabel coming back and rebuilding the temple, and then it's Nehemiah coming and rebuilding the walls. And then verse 11, for I know what I have planned for you, says the Lord. Now, isn't this great? If I was the Lord, I would have zapped them all. Have fun in Babylon. I don't want to see you again. We'll start with the Samaritans. No. I have plans to prosper you, not to harm you. I have plans to give you a future filled with hope. Hope, what was that? You're in captivity in Babylon. Your home is destroyed. You lost everything. Hope? 
When you call out to me, the Lord says, and come to me in prayer, I will hear your prayers. When you seek me in prayer and worship, you will find me available to you. If you seek me with all your heart and soul, I will myself make available to you, says the Lord. Then I will reverse your plight. I will regather you from all the nations and all the places where I have exiled you, says the Lord. I will bring you back to the place for which I have exiled you. When you read through these 120 names, you ought to see fulfilled, promise fulfilled, promise fulfilled, boom, boom, boom. This is the Lord. It's glorious. Yeah, I mean, some of these people, I don't know who they are. They're, they're mentioned once here. We don't know what they look like, you know. But one thing for certain, God keeps his promises. And you may be sitting here this morning and say, I, I don't see the Lord in this. You feel like you're in Babylon. Now, I don't know where the Lord is. What does he say? If you will come to me in prayer, I will hear your prayers, says the Lord. I myself, the Lord says, will reveal it to you. But this laundry list just doesn't remind us that God keeps his promises. It also assures us God is powerful. No nation, no leader is going to thwart God, right? Babylon, <laughs> They had it all together. Yet in 539, the Lord knew, you're done. God is powerful and he will see fit that his word comes to pass. It reminds us as well as I look through this list that God is gracious and loving. Again, <laughs> remember why they went to Babylon. It wasn't because they were having a glorious praise service. They weren't honoring the Lord. They weren't fearing him. That's why he got out the paddle with holes in it and said, bend over. <laughs> Time for a spanking. It reminds God is gracious and loving and reminds us the need to be faithful. I look through these names and while again, many of them we do not know, it's a reminder that we too need to be fulfilling the task that God has placed before us. Wouldn't it be great on your tombstone if it could be said what is said of the Hannies right there in verse two, they are faithful and feared God. Wow, right? Put that on your tombstone. Of course, we pray the Lord comes back and we'll just meet the Lord in the air. But, you know, if you're put six foot under, make sure that thing is on there, right? When we reflect the names of the early settlers, our descendants who came to this country, I mean, look at my great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather coming across. What went through your mind? You left your family, your parents, and knowing no where you're headed and you look through your genealogy list if you have one it's a reminder god is powerful he's gracious he's faithful and he's loving i love the lyrics of the hymn god of our fathers whose mighty hand often saying on a fourth of july service but listen to the lyrics. Thy love divine hath led us in the past. In this free land with thee our lot is cast. Be thou our ruler, our guardian, our guide, and stay. Thy word, our law, thy paths, our chosen way. You look through this list, it's a reminder. Lord, you're in charge. We bend our knee and we look to you. This isn't coincidence that you have this list with certain numbers. It's a reminder, yes, you went into exile and you probably thought you'd never return. And yet 42,360 Jews returned to the land. The text tells us that here in Nehemiah 7. They return 
and God is faithful to his word. That's hope. That's hope. Well, there's three principles there in your notes. First of all, the church must not lose sight of the importance of tradition and God's people. We benefit, don't we, from the lives of the older saints, the generations who've gone before, those who were living in Babylon and can tell the tale. Can you, as they're building the wall, I can just see some of the older folks standing around and say, oh, this is great. Let's tell you when we built the temple. <laughs> you know, these stories, the, the, the legacy that's been given and passed on, it's so important. Someone said, old age is great. No one expects you to run anywhere, right? Old age is great. You and your teeth don't sleep together. And your joints make the same noises as a coffee maker. <laughs> well, that may be, but I will tell you, old age, the senior saints are vital to the church. Think about it. David needed a Jonathan. Timothy needed a Paul. And if you don't think it's a problem, when you don't have older, mature Christians speaking into your life, ask Rehoboam what a mess he made because he wouldn't listen to the older men, the council in 2 Chronicles 10. Older saints provide insight and wisdom They've passed through the milestones that we are walking through. Older saints provide support. They understand. They, they've been there. They've done that. And honestly, they communicate clearly. They don't have any time to mess around. <laughs> and I love the punches that sometimes they'll deliver. It's good. We need to hear that in the church. Just as here in Nehemiah, there's a reminder, hey, there's much we can glean from those who have gone before. Serving the Lord entails far more than effective use of talents and abilities. The second point in your notes. Great accomplishments do not guarantee God's continued blessing in the future. Nehemiah knew this. This is why he's appointing people to carry the torch who also fear God, who are found faithful. Micah 6 states, Will the Lord accept a thousand rams or ten thousand streams of olive oil? Man, that's one great sacrifice. And the text says, no, he's told you, oh man, what is good and what the Lord really wants from you. It's not another bobo. No, what he wants from you is to carry out justice, to love faithfulness, and to live obediently before your God. He's looking for some people who will fear him. That's what he desires. And that's a reminder here again in Nehemiah. And finally, we must not lose sight of God's presence in our lives whether it's the challenges of life or the periods of great accomplishments, the Lord must be first and foremost. My favorite Puritan writer, Thomas Watson, writes, God's center is everywhere. His circumference, nowhere. <laughs> God is in all. And Psalm 14, fools say to themselves, there is no God. They sin and commit evil deeds. None of them does what is right. Verse 2 of that psalm, the Lord looks down from heaven at the human race to see if there's anyone who is wise and seeks him. Where do you get wisdom? Proverbs 1. Fearing God is the beginning of wisdom, is it not? So what is he looking for in Psalm 14? He's looking for people who fear him. Matthew 6. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So this morning... Are you seeking after God? Do you fear the Lord? 
Nehemiah reminds us, Nehemiah reminds us that the Lord is looking, well, he's not looking for lip service. <laughs> I've met many people who say, oh yes, I believe in Jesus. Well, so do the demons and they tremble. There's no change in their life. There's no actions that would indicate there's any difference because they have Jesus. True repentance has never occurred. And I would dare say there may be one or two in this room. Oh, you've played the game. You've waltzed around it. But whether it's fear, embarrassment, confusion, or doubt that's eclipsing a transformation that is drastically needed. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have, have everlasting life. He is the one who gives peace, comfort, and hope. And for those of us who've placed our faith in Christ, oh yes, there's a point when you bent your knee, you repented of your sins, and you accepted the gift that Jesus gives by having died on a cross for your sins and rose from the dead. How are you doing in the categories of faithfulness and fearing him? Similar to the genealogy list of Nehemiah 7, communion is a great time to pause and reflect. This morning, hopefully, you have this, <laughs> the cup and the bread. And I, I was thinking a lot about this in light of 4th of July, the list here, the genealogy list in Nehemiah Communion, it's like that laundry list of names. It's a reminder that, that God is faithful and we are called to be faithful. We're to repent and be holy. And as we come to the communion table and take of these elements, I'm reminded of what Paul said to the believers at Corinth. He said, if there's unconfessed sin, it has to be dealt with before you take of this. Why? Because he says you're making a mockery of the bread and the cup. A mockery because this is what Christ, it symbolizes what Christ did for us. <laughs> and so to take it unworthily, to have unconfessed sin, uh, uh, the um, refusal to bend the knee and fear God, then why are you taking of this? Because this is saying, Lord, thank you. I bend the knee and I recognize you are my savior. And communion is good because uh, for many of the reasons, but one is taking it on a regular basis. It continues us to remind us who we are before a holy God. The genealogy list, it's long. It's somewhat painful to read through and pronunciation reasons, but it's good. It's a reminder. This is our God. This is who we serve. And so, this morning, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, this isn't for you. Because you need to bend your knee before God. You need to submit to Him. If you know Christ as your Savior and you're not living in sin, then this is for you. And so, let's take some time in reflection, confessing our sin before the Lord and coming with pure hearts before Him.
Lord, we come to you and you look through the list of names and these numbers and it's reminding you're not playing games. <laughs> what you say, you mean business. And Father, you've gone to great lengths to ensure your reputation. And we have the privilege of being listed among the saints, those of us who know your son as our savior. Our citizenship is found in heaven. It rests with you and we are called your children and we marvel at your grace. Father, we, we long to fear you, to have the awe of you. And I confess it's hard when life is so busy. We find we're caught up in the day-to-day -day activities. And then you wrestle with the critical heart or an unclean lips or inappropriate eyes or impure thoughts. The list goes on. They just come all crashing in and it's so hard at times that we, we lose sight of you. Thank you for this Lord's table. Thank you for an opportunity to reflect on the incredible sacrifice made so that we can fear you, that we have the indwelling of the Spirit which guides, directs, and ensures that there's a day coming <laughs> when we'll be in your midst forever and ever. And we'll join the saints of old, the Hanis, the Nehemiahs, as we worship you in the new Jerusalem. Until then, we must be found faithful, fearing you, exalting your name for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, Paul goes on to write that to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 11. He, he said, For I received from the Lord which I have passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed, he, he took the bread. It was a much larger piece than this. Because he breaks it, which is so symbolic of what happened there on the cross. No bone was broken, but his flesh was. So much so that when the scourging, most likely bones would have been exposed. And Jesus, he gave thanks. And he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. He says, do this in remembrance of me. <laughs> the same way he also took the cup. And he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this every time you drink it in remembrance of me. And then he says, Paul writes, for every time you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, thank you. Thank you in the most horrific event in history, the crucifixion of your son, the God-man, Jesus Christ. We find hope, we find peace, and we find redemption. Salvation in the name of our blessed Savior, your son, Jesus. We thank you.